0: Revelation chapter 19, this morning, with God's help, we will follow up on last week's sermon on the doctrine of hell, and we will just use one verse as kind of our launching pad for uh, the doctrine of hell that we will be considering this morning. The verse is found in uh, chapter 19, verse 20 of Revelation. Hear now the word of our Lord, for this is God's very word. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and now to the preaching of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider the doctrine of your goodness revealed in the punishment of the wicked in hell. Give us minds that understand. Give us hearts that believe. Lord, give us hands and feet that obey. We ask that you would be gracious to us, Lord. Enlighten our minds that we may know. Lord, I decrease that you may increase Lord, I become less that you can become more. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Saints of God, please be seated. Brothers and sisters, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Last week, we considered the doctrine of hell. This Lord's Day today, I was planning on preaching a chapter uh, on chapter 22 of our Confession, paragraph 8, but while the doctrine of hell is still fresh in our mind, I suppose, I thought it would be wise to have a a follow-up sermon to our sermon from last week. So this morning we will be considering kind of a part two to last week. In verse 17 of chapter 19, John uses the metaphor of a sufferer in order to describe the type of suffering, torment, and torture that the unrighteous will experience for eternity in hell. Saints of God, the unrighteous will not suffer in hell at the hands of Satan and his angels. Satan and his angels will not be punishing the reprobate in hell. They will not be, as I guess has become a caricature, they will not be dancing around the unrighteous. Stabbing them with pitchforks for eternity. I'm sure that we've seen something like that of hell. No, God actually will be the one who is pouring out his judgment upon the unrighteous and they will suffer, torture, be tormented along with Satan and his angels for eternity. John calls this judgment punishment, thus the great supper of God. It is not a supper of friendship for the, un, for the unrighteous are not invited as it were, they are the main course to be devoured in God's judgment. Devoured, not in the sense that they will cease to exist, we'll get to that later on in our sermon, but in the sense that they will suffer under the justice of God. The supper of God is meant to be the antithesis, the opposite of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Whatever the marriage supper of the Lamb is, the supper of God is not. It's the very opposite. One, a supper of sweet intimacy. The other, a supper of awful distance. One, a supper of friendship. The other, a supper of wrath. One, of beholding the face of God. And the other, a denial of being access to seeing God's glorious face. Last week, we gave a brief consideration of the sufferings of hell more like a foundational um explanation presentation of hell we discussed the reality of hell that hell is a real place uh, that hell is experienced by the whole person body and soul that hell is eternal and finally that hell is for the unrepentant this morning with God's help i would like to give i don't do this often but but a more polemical sermon and and Hope hope to God that it is a sermon, I pray that it is, one that is answering questions or objections that we might have been confronted with when we are considering the doctrine of hell. Uh, Let me say at the outset, I will not be able to answer all of the things that I would like to address in this polemical sermon, but one thing I would like to have at the forefront of our minds throughout this entire sermon is this. And, and thank you Pastor Isaiah. He didn't, I didn't talk to him about this point that I was going to kind of spearhead for this sermon. But Pastor Isaiah, thank you for your liturgy because in your prayer you emphasize continually the goodness of God. What I would like us to have at the forefront of our minds to be spearheading the sermon is this. God reveals His goodness actually. God reveals His goodness through the just punishment of the wicked for eternity. I'll say that again. This is the point of the sermon. God reveals his goodness through the just punishment of the wicked for eternity. If you keep that at the forefront of your mind as we're considering all these other things, I think we're going to be able to be all right together. So this morning, with God's help, um, we will consider just three points. Number one, God reveals his goodness through the torments. I'm sorry. God reveals his goodness through the eternal torments of hell. God reveals his goodness. How? Through the eternal torments of hell. The eternal torments of hell. Again, Revelation 19:20 is our launching pad for this sermon. Let's be honest, saints. At least I had to be honest with myself as I was preparing this sermon. <clears throat> the language of hell, as described in the scriptures, can at times make us feel very uncomfortable. The language of hell, as described in the scriptures, can at times, and, and maybe more often times than not, Make us feel very uncomfortable. Luke 16 23, hell is described as torment. Uh, think about these words. In verse 25 of that same chapter, it is described as anguish. I'm going to say these verses as I said last week. Matthew 9:43, unquenchable fire. Mark 9.48. A place where the worm does not die. I'm going to go through these faster now. uh, Matthew 13, 42. Gnashing of teeth, anguish, anger, sorrow. Matthew 25, 30. A place of outer darkness. Matthew 23, 33. A place of condemnation or a place for the condemned. Matthew 13:42 a place where there is weeping nonstop weeping continual eternal weeping Matthew 25:41 a place that is prepared for Satan and his angels and those who follow in the same prideful rebellion as Satan and his angels That language is off. walking through it, it it doesn't make one smile does it You've got to be kind of a sick, twisted human being to read that and and, and kind of rub your hands together and smile as you read these verses, don't you? On at least 20 occasions, our Lord Jesus described hell as being a place of fire on at least 20 occasions. The biblical descriptions of hell can make us feel uncomfortable. But are you ready for your comfort level to increase? Because the descriptions of hell are actually meant to communicate something that is actually far worse than what the language of hell is describing. If you are uncomfortable reading about the language, if you're uncomfortable reading about hell through the language of scripture, then know this. Scripture is actually describing something that is far worse than its symbol. Let's, let's, let's acknowledge this. The writers of sacred scripture They are bound to write all that God has inspired them to write. Nothing more, nothing less. Therefore, if hell was anything less than torment and torture, the writers of sacred scripture would have avoided anything that comes close to the language of torment and torture. If it was not as bad as it was, then they would would steer clear from any language of torment and torture. Yeah? The language of Scripture, when describing the horrors of hell, are signs. They're signs that are are meant to give us a sense of what will be greater and more horrific than their reality. When you see the sign of McDonald's, the sign itself is not McDonald's. It's leading you to something that is inside there, right? Namely, cancer and death and diabetes. When you see the language of hell, you are seeing words that are meant to be signs that point to something or describe something far worse than what the language actually is describing. Last week, we learned that the righteous will suffer in hell, body and soul. In relation to the suffering of body and soul, there are, in fact, at least two aspects to eternal suffering that will torment and torture. I'm going to get to why am I using those words again. That will torment and torture body and soul forever. God, help me just to be slow in explaining these things. First, the torture and torment of the soul. Let's consider these. The torture and torment of the soul. Brothers and sisters, the soul is the conscience self. Uh, The spirit that expresses passion. The soul that, that wills and the mind that reasons or processes. These things animate your body. In hell, the soul of the believer will be tortured and tormented for eternity. What is the torture and torment of the soul? Again, think of this. Everything that heaven is for the soul, hell is not for the soul. Everything that heaven is for the soul, heaven is not for the soul. Everything that we enjoy soul-wise in heaven, we will, those who are in hell, will not enjoy soul-wise. It is again the antithesis or the opposite of what those in heaven will know for eternity. In the new creation, heaven, we shall know perfect peace of our soul. The unbeliever will never have peace for their soul. In the new creation in heaven, the believer will have complete joy. There will be no joy lacking. There will no, there will be no ebbs and flows of joy nor, nor ebbs and flows of peace in hell. There will constantly be a downward spiral, spiral of joy. They will never know joy. Not even an ounce of joy. Not even a a moment of relent, of relenting to give them comfort. There will be no joy. The unbeliever will have unrelenting, unquenchable despair. In the new creation, the believer will have the hope of their soul fulfilled. Right now, we are hoping, anticipating the return of Christ. We are looking forward to the one who will come and take his bride away. And our hope will never never be put to shame. Our hope will be made a reality. The unbeliever in hell lives in eternal hopelessness. There is no hope for them, and they will live with the the eternal reality that there is no hope. Why do they have no hope? Why do they have no joy? Why do they have no peace? It is because they have invested unwisely. You ever bought something that you thought you would be able to turn around and flip with some money, then you realize you lost it all? They will have that eternal reality forever. They have invested unwisely. How have they invested unwisely? What did they invest in? They invested their soul and body into the great harlot. They gave in to her allurements and they gave themselves wholly to her, to Babylon. They believed the false prophets... Who spoke on behalf of the dragon, Satan, and they gave themselves wholly to, the, to Babylon. And now, or and then, in heaven they weep. You will remember in Revelation nineteen nineteen, the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with the harlot. What do they do? They weep, and they lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, when they see that she is no more, they weep for eternity. Here's why. Because their joy has ended. And the source of their joy is no more. All that the harlot, i.e. Babylon, gave to them in this life, it cannot give to them any more in eternity hell. Part of their weeping is the source of their joy is no more. Let us be clear. Weeping in hell. Let me say this. I'm going to try to say this. Lord, help me. Weeping in hell is not over wanting God. In a sense. Weeping in hell is not over wanting God. In a sense. They know God is true. Okay, follow me. They can see that, in fact, they were wrong. They will confess that he is King of kings, Lord of lords. They will bow their knee and acknowledge this. They will do this. They will weep because they know they have not lived up to what they have been made for. But their weeping is not a godly weep. It's not a weep that says, God, forgive me and accept me. Not not in the least. It's not a weeping of conversion that leads to repentance because no repentance will be offered in hell. Rather, it's a knowing they've been made by God, but they are frustrated because they refuse to come to God on God's terms. They want God to accept them on their terms and he will not. And they hate his judgment of them. Not necessarily him, but the effects of him. I I, I could say it this way, I guess more theological philosophical. They don't hate the essence of God. They hate the effects of God. They don't hate the essence of God, that God is God. They hate The way God has judged them as God. It's worldly sorrow. It's sorry you got caught, not sorry for the act. And that will be the result of their soul forever. Therefore, they are not given the face of God. They will not receive the beatific vision, but they will receive the back of God. They will never see his face and enjoy him this is important pastor and Isaiah were talking and Isaiah and I were talking about this if they were allowed to see God's face and not turn and delight in him then there's something to be said about what seeing the face of God actually does for someone wow. if we believe that the beatific vision results in eternal blessedness then those in hell can never receive that because they will not receive eternal blessedness see receiving the back of God is to is to receive actually um the opposite of friendship, which is enmity. We are not friends, we are enemies. I explained that last week, didn't I, when I was saying that, that, yeah. have you ever been with someone and they don't even, they don't even want to see your face? They're that angry with you. They don't even want to look at you. It is in a sense like that with the unbeliever to God. Their soul will be tormented day and night because they are denied access to the harlot. God has removed their joy. And because they are denied access to God. And they will weep. Their joy, which they had on earth, is gone. And the one who they know they have been made for also will not accept them. And they refuse to change. They also will not be allowed to change. We'll talk about that. I'm I'm saying they refuse to change. They also, in the eternal state, you're locked in that. There's no changing after that. We'll get to that in the second point. Uh, Thomas Aquinas makes an interesting point concerning weeping. And this is actually kind of speaking about the body. The weeping of the reprobate is a weeping without tears. It is a sorrow without tears. And the interesting take is that They don't shed tears because tears require nourishment in order order to be produced. And there will be no nourishment for the wicked in hell. They will cry um, waterless tears. Augustine and Aquinas agree that the worm that the Lord Jesus speaks about, the undying worm, is the torment of the soul for the unbeliever. They will live, body and soul, in utter darkness. We've heard that darkness before. No light will be given to them. Talk about this for the body. They have eyes, but everything that they see reminds them of everything they have lost, which only increases their pain and anguish to their soul. They can see everything they've lost and it only increases their anguish. Aquinas talks about how when uh, he, he relates it to a fire and from the outside, we see billowing smoke. Aquinas says, it's even worse from the inside. And that's what the unbeliever sees. The unbeliever, imagine him in the inside. We, sometimes my son, my, hate, my son hates when I do this, but if I see a fire and it's really, really billowing smoke, I go, let's go see what it looks like. And he gets really afraid. and go, no, Dad, but we get close. And you kind to drive by and you go, whoa, it's really burning out there. Imagine what it's like in there. That is a sense of what hell is like for the unbeliever. All they see is destruction and hopelessness. Hopelessness. For earthly fires, there's an escape door. You can imagine if you're in a fire, you're crawling down and you're looking for a gleam of light to get out. There is no escape in hell. That's something of a sight of hell. And, and, and brothers and sisters, what I'm explaining is far worse than, than what it actually is. Secondly, the, the suffering of the body. There was so much more we could talk about with the soul. But suffering of the body. The scriptures testify that all shall be raised, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. The suffering of the body is most mysterious, I must say. Some imagine that the fires of hell affect, afflicting a true, some, um, imagine that the fires of hell afflicting a true body without, without it ceasing is impossible. Does that make sense? How can someone who has a body burn and then not cease to exist? Some would argue that the torment of hell is only the loss of intimacy with God and eternal separation, which is a torment of the soul and not of the body. That is actually against the testimony of Scripture. Some will say, it's just going to be a a mind torture. No, actually the Scriptures say it's going to also be a body torture. For the soul to suffer is agonizing. But let's be honest, some of us might even take some comfort in knowing, well, my soul is going to suffer, but not my body. It's almost going to be like a dream that I can't wake up from. That's a false idea. Not only will the immaterial self suffer in hell, but also the material self, the body, will suffer in hell. You will suffer, not you, those, the wicked will uh, suffer body and soul. Hell will not be a dream that you can't wake up from. It will be a never-ending reality. Tormenting reality. The unbeliever will actually be living something far worse than their worst nightmare. So, how does one burn without fire, or burn, how does one burn without being consumed by the fire? I immediately kind of thought of um, Exodus chapter, I think three or four, when the the bush burns and yet is not consumed? Because God, with his holy fire, is burning it. That may or may not be a good connection, but we must remember that the language of Scripture is meant to communicate something far worse. We know this. In case of fire, the word fire is used because it is the most immediate symbol of pain upon the flesh that we can think of as being the most excruciating. We can think of a lot of things that are excruciating. Getting cut... That that hurts. Being burned, though, being burned is one of the most um, excruciating experiences that that one can have. We know about touching a hot plate, and and maybe your hands or your fingers being burned, and it becomes crispy for a little while. There is something about burning, about being burned, that is that is unrelenting. Fire is used as an analogy. Of the great pain that those in hell will be experiencing. Now, I think this is interesting, but Aquinas brings up the, the, the idea of species of fire. Is it the same kind of fire that you and I know as fire? Most likely not. Because the symbol is meant to point to something worse. Is it a fire? Well, the scriptures say yes, but it's probably worse than the fire that we know. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10:28. Do not be afraid of those who can kill a body, but are, are unable to kill a soul. Rather fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. How is the body affected? I, I, I can be honest with you. I don't actually know. And in, in, in studying the best of minds, and we quote these minds because they are the best of minds. And yet even they say, it's going to be mysterious, but the body will suffer. Here's what we know. The soul suffers to the, to the effect that, that it even affects the body. I don't know if you've ever been in, I don't know if you've ever experienced a kind of soul suffering that has affected your body where you don't want to eat, where you don't want to do anything, where you just feel kind of gloomy and, and unproductive. Something like that is what the body and soul suffer in hell. Something like that. Thomas Boston, there shall never more, they shall never more, the ungodly, Never more taste of his goodness and bounty, that which is experienced on earth, nor have the least glimpse of hope from him. They will see his heart to be absolutely alienated from them. They shall be deprived of glory of the glorious presence of the enjoyment of God. They shall have no part in the beauty of their vision, nor see anything in God toward them, but one wave of wrath rolling after another. This will bring them overwhelming floods of sorrow forevermore. Let's bring let's bring the, the point to this, I think. Why are they judged? It's because God is good. All of the, the horror that we have just explained, why is that taking place? It's not just because they were bad. It's because God is good. If we just think of it as you are bad people, we are missing that it is God first who reveals his goodness through the judgment of the wicked. This may seem contradictory because our our judgment of good and evil is still clouded by sin. All throughout Revelation, the righteous, when witnessing the judgment and punishment that God gives to the wicked, they don't lament, they celebrate. Revelation 9, 19 1. Hallelujah. Salvation, this is at, at, as Babylon is falling. Hallelujah! Salvation, glory and power belong to our God. And listen to what they say. Because His judgments are true and righteous, for He has judged the great harlot and those who are, I, I'm not, I'm adding this to 219, and those who are with her. The righteous in heaven, you and me, we will celebrate God's manifesting His goodness through giving the perfect verdict of judgment and punishment upon the wicked. Saints of God, when a earthly judge judges rightly, when he gives a good and right verdict, and when he dispenses a good and right punishment, we say that is a good judge. When a judge does not act righteously, justly on earth, We lament over their lack of justice and their poor verdict. And we are still on earth wrestling with sin. There will be no sin in heaven. All our understanding of God and his goodness will be made made right and holy. Therefore, when God executes his justice and his judgment, we will say, God is good. God is good. Revelation 16, 5, righteous are you who are and who were, oh holy one, because you judge these things for you, for they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. They, the scriptures say this, Tony, they deserve it. I didn't add that. That's Revelation 9, I think 6, and they deserve it. Here we go. Oh, give them some mercy, God. Help them. In heaven, we will say, yep, they got what was coming to them. We will amend. The judgment and punishment of God, and I heard the altar saying, "Those who are under the altar, that's the saints. Yes, O Lord, the, the Almighty, true and righteous are Your judgments. We amend what You do. We amend what You say. God's judgments of torment and torture and suffering are a manifestation of His goodness. Listen to this, and love for His own self, His own holiness." his own glory his own goodness and also for his bride and those who unjustly persecuted her the wicked they shall the wicked drink from the cup of god's wrath twice as much as they inflicted on god's people because god is good and shows his goodness reveals his goodness in the punishment of the wicked for eternity god is good second point god reveals his goodness listen to this in the intermediate judgment of the wicked. First point, in the eternal judgment of the wicked. Second point, in the intermediate judgment of the wicked, God is revealing his goodness. Saints of God, not only does God reveal his goodness in the eternal punishment of the wicked in future hell, but since hell is not yet, God reveals his goodness even now in the punishment of the wicked in the intermediate state. Last Lord's Day, I mentioned Luke 16. You can turn there. Luke 16, in passing, as a good explanation of the intermediate state. When I reference Luke 16, of course, I'm speaking of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Many of you know that story well. That may cause some questions to arise because of the suffering of the rich man. He seems to be the kind of focus of that particular story. His vision seems to be less worse and more clear, actually, than what I explained in my first point. Does that make sense? What the rich man sees seems to be less worse and more clear than what I explained in my first point. So what gives? Because there's some things about what the rich man suffers that, that seem to contradict what our first point brought up. When considering Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, let me ask you not to do this. Don't exclude the story from the context. Don't, if you're writing notes even, that's a, that's a rule. Don't exclude the story from the context. Now, the goal is, what exactly is the context? Some ask, is this even a story? Is this more like a parable? It's both. Let me say, I believe Luke 16, verses 19 through 23, parable, is not a real story. But I do believe that everything about the story is true. With me? When you begin to examine Luke 16, in order to find the context, you have to actually go back to Luke 14. You've got to go back not one, but two chapters. And you have to go to Luke 15. Here's building up to it. In in chapter 14 of Luke, the Lord is being scoffed at and reviled by Pharisees because he heals a man on the Sabbath. In Luke 15, our, the Pharisees begin to grumble amongst themselves because Christ is receiving sinners and having fellowship with them at a dinner table. Pharisees and their response to Christ creates this kind of two and three chapter. If you look at those chapters, there's a lot of, if you have a red Bible, a red letter Bible, a lot of red going on in those two two or three chapters. Christ is doing a lot of speaking about them. So our Lord begins this process of of a series of teachings and a series of parables that are aimed as a, listen to this, aimed as a rebuke against the Pharisees. He teaches of a wedding feast and gives insight into the way that we should show honor to one another. Not, Not try to find the best seats in the house as if those seats will give you honor because they won't. It's a rebuke against the Pharisees. He gives the parable of the dinner, inviting people to this dinner. He, he gives the parable of the lost sheep, who, who is pursued by God, the good shepherd. The good shepherd leaves the 99, goes after the one. He tells the parable of the lost coin, person who loses a valuable coin and, and does all that he can to go after that coin, and then also the lost son, the prodigal son, as you know. And these examples, as an example of a father's love for sinners... Who are lost until they are found by God. Then the Lord tells the parable of a rich man and a poor man. That's the context. It's leading into the story of, listen to this, rebuke and mercy. Of warning, of, of coming judgment. But time to still repent. Both the Pharisees, and those who were considered wretched sinners were present to hear the story of this rich man in Lazarus. So if you're getting it, if you're building a picture in your mind, think of that when Jesus is getting ready to tell the story, the Pharisees are there and also those who are being reviled by the Pharisees and also who are reviling Christ for eating with them, the sinners, they are both the audience. Just before the story, the Pharisees are highlighted for their their love of money, Luke 16, 14. Just before the Lord gets into the parable of the rich man, there's a statement that can be kind of passed over, and that is Pharisees love money. The Pharisees are represented by the rich man in this story. The rich man, habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, He enjoys the splendor of life. He almost carries himself as royalty. The Pharisees were known for wearing long flowing robes. They loved to be recognized in the streets and called rabbi or teacher. They loved honor. They loved respect and glory. They conducted themselves as if they were royalty. And as a result of their pride, they were merciless. Toward those whom they had been called to be merciful to. They were the teachers, but they were putting heavy loads on men that they themselves could not carry. They burdened men with the law of God and their additions to the law of God. They didn't just teach the law. They, taught their, 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 they also taught their interpretations and their additions. The law of God no longer was a joy for the people of God. It was a, 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 a merciless taskmaster who could never be pleased Lazarus Lazarus name's mean name Lazarus name means God will save And he represents lost sinners who are in need of mercy Why, why is this m- mercy word keep bringing keep being brought up it's throughout the entire text The sinners who came and dined with the Lord they are represented by Lazarus so these ones who the Pharisees say he, he eats with sinners and tax collectors, the Lord sums them up with one name: Lazarus. God will save them. Will you notice where Lazarus sits every day? Luke 16:20. A poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which fa- are, were falling from the rich man's table. The Lord most likely is referring to a particular gate, one that at least gate-wise, everyone in the audience would have immediately recognized. Most likely, it is the main gate through which all people would enter through Jerusalem. It's called the Eastern Gate, which is called the Golden Gate, which is also known as this, the Gate of Mercy. Lazarus is sitting day by day at the Gate of Mercy, and he's not receiving any. Day by day, not only does Nazareth, Lazarus, sorry, Naz, not only does he not receive mercy, but the rich man is not even willing to give him the tiniest of crumbs that fall from his table. Here's what's shocking. That dogs are in fact more merciful to Lazarus than the rich. Dogs Come. And they lick his sores. Dogs. The lowest of the creatures during that time. The dogs. They will give more comfort, more mercy to Lazarus than those who are called to be teachers of Israel and to teach of God's mercy. The lowest of creatures are giving more mercy to the sinner than the Pharisee. Those who were considered and considered themselves children of Abraham Now watch this. They both die. Angels, we'll get to that, carry Lazarus into Abraham's bosom and, or paradise, while the rich man is carried away by angels, angels, into place of torment. At this point, let's let's make this clear as a side note. Do not take away from this story rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. Not the point. Um, Paradise is a precursor to heaven. Hell is a... Or, uh, place of torment is a precursor to hell. But the point is not rich. all rich go to hell and all poor go to heaven. That's the case. Let's just get rid of everything before. Moving on. Notice that God has saved this poor man Who represents sinners? And where does where does the poor man go? He goes into the the arms or the bosom, which is drawing near, into the arms of Abraham. Now, saints, why Abraham? That's that's important for the context, isn't it? There's a cultural idea that that when you go to heaven, Peter is actually standing at the gates of heaven, uh, waiting for you to check your name off and let you in. That's a false belief. Uh, people believe that, key, that Peter has the liter- literal keys of heaven to the gates of heaven. But here, someone might conclude it looks like Abraham is actually the keeper of heaven. That's not the point either. The Lord is using Abraham as a rebuke against the Pharisees. Why? Because they constantly called themselves children of Abraham. But because of their unwillingness to displo- display listen faith in Christ and mercy toward the, the sinner, they show that they are not true children of Abraham. In fact, that the poor man is actually the child of Abraham because he receives Christ. John 8.39 Lord, The Lord is having this interaction with the Pharisees. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. So you can't be a child of Abraham because you would do the deeds of your father. He goes on to say in Luke, or in John 844, you're children of the devil actually. The Lord will say in John 856, the faith of Abraham was believing in Christ and longing to see him. The, Pharisee, the Pharisees displayed that they are not children of Abraham, children of the devil. Thus, when they lift up their eyes in death, they see that they are actually separated from Abraham. Not embraced by the man who is supposed to be their father. And therefore, they will receive no comfort. And even still, in hell, in place of torment, guess who they are appealing to? In torment, they ultimately attempt to justify themselves as being heirs of Abraham. Father Abraham, they call out. They don't believe that they are deserving of the punishment they are receiving. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. It's not an appeal to Christ. It's an appeal to Abraham. And what else do they want? And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool off my tongue, for I am in agony and here it is in this flame. They don't appeal to Christ, they appeal to Abraham, who was not authorized to give mercy, for he is not a mediator between God and man. Christ is. They see Abraham as their mediator. Abraham is not the steward of comfort, but he is an example in the Old Testament of how one can find comfort. It is through faith in Christ, the promised seed of Abraham. Abraham believed. The Lord Jesus says, Abraham longed to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And then Christ gives a voice to Abraham. He allows Abraham to speak and speak on behalf of Christ. He says, there's a great chasm. There's a great gulf fixed between you and I so that those who want to come here can't and those who want to go there can't. Now someone might go, does that mean that we we will regret in hell and want to go to heaven? no. The Lord is saying in the intermediate state before hell and in the eternal state, hell, you will not be able to change sides. There is no possibility in either states, immediate or intermediate or eternal to cross over to the other side. Neither will you want to. Not in a holy, godly sense. It's a place of torment. The rich man cries out in agony and flames. The rich man begs for a miracle then. First for himself. Um, he wants to be comforted while he's in hell. Won't be allowed. That's a miracle. Give me a moment of comfort. Not going to happen. Second miracle that he requests is, well then go send, my, go send Lazarus to my brother. She wants a miracle. The point is not that people in hell will want to be properly saved, I say properly because that they're not he's not saying help my brothers to repent and trust in Christ. Instead he says let them see Lazarus. Let them see a miracle, a man who came back from the dead. Jesus is going to get to a point on this too. It's what the Pharisees kept asking for, wasn't it? Show us a sign. Show us a sign. And what does Christ say? I'm not going to give you a sign. On second thought, i got a sign for you. When you see the Son of Man, as Jonah was, there will be your sign. And then raised, and they still won't believe. Remember Nazareth, they they constructed this false idea that, that Jesus was actually stolen by his disciples, not raised from the dead. They still won't believe. No sign will be given. No no miracle, no more miracles will be given. You have the law and the prophets. And the fulfillment of them is standing right in front of you and you still won't believe. No. This is why the Lord says at the end of that story, Luke 17, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would, it would be better for him to, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. It's a final rebuke against the Pharisees. A final warning to the, to the disciples. Be on guard. While there are things about the immediate state, immediate, intermediate state, and the internal state that we can learn, the, the main point is the point for today. God is good. And he will reveal his goodness when he judges and punishes the wicked for their sin, both now and in hell in eternity. How do we know that? Who is it that carries both persons to their place? It's the angels. That displays that God has executed judgment on both of them. God has done what is just and right. He has given mercy to the one, and to the one who is merciless, he gives no mercy. Those who have received no mercy will be shown mercy. For God's name is God will save. God will save. A name of God is that God will save, right? God reveals his goodness in that he gives mercy and grace to the weak. David said, have mercy on me. That's the cry of one who will be saved. Oh God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That's the cry of one who will be saved. But the one who continues to justify themselves, the one who continues to say, I should be saved because of these deeds and because of my lineage and because of my works, they will receive no mercy. The Lord will be merciful to those also who He desires to be merciful to. Romans 9, don't we? We know that. Again, those who are merciless, God will show no mercy. But He will reveal His goodness in that He will judge the wicked for their sin, both now in the intermediate state and the eternal state. Christ was displaying His goodness. Even Christ in that rebuke is displaying goodness to the Pharisees. He's giving them a warning. He's giving them, while they still live, a chance to repent, and they will not. There were some who did secretly, though. Nicodemus secretly believed in the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea secretly took the body of the Lord. The Lord was giving them mercy, and it could be it could be possible that they were present when the Lord was giving these warnings through these stories of repent while there was still time. I say to you, you who are sitting here, repent while there is still time. Because there will be no going from one place or the other once you are in that intermediate or eternal state. You can't go from one place or the other. Your state will be fixed. Turn now. And God right now is revealing his goodness, even through this sermon. There is still time. A literal story? No. But everything about the story that it's intending to communicate is true. Thirdly and finally... This will be the shortest of points. God reveals His goodness through the punishment of the wicked. That's just in general. In the opening of the sermon, I made the point that hell is a place of suffering, torture, and torment. With that, remember that it is not Satan who is executing his punishment, executing punishment on behalf of God, but Satan too will be experiencing punishment at the hands of God. God will execute punishment upon the wicked, That may, and I'm kind of circling back, it may be presently hard for us or difficult for us to understand how God, who is love, hear that now, will be pouring out for eternity punishment upon the wicked. Some might even conclude that God will not punish the reprobate for eternity, but that because he is love, he will allow them to cease to exist. This is called annihilationism, where one just ceases to be. Proponents of this belief argue that God displays mercy and his love in doing such things, for it is not merciful for God to punish sinners for eternity for something that was committed for a short amount of time. Does that make sense? They argue that the punishment does not seem to fit the crime. I'm I'm punished for eternity, but I only did this for this amount of time. seems to be an imbalance of judgment, at least in their view. The eternality of hell is such that there is a type of, again, fixed nature to it. Once man exists, he cannot cease to exist. Once man is, he will always, in a sense, be. At the end of man's life, after he has been presented with the free offer of the gospel, he will have either accepted or denied the gospel of grace. And depending upon that accepting or denial will determine where they spend eternity in hell. The repentance and faith that unlocks salvation will never be offered to them ever again in death. That state is fixed and there is no going back. The rich man in hell never regretted or repented of his treatment or lack of mercy to Lazarus in hell. He only regretted his eternal situation. When we argue that God could not punish the reprobate in such horrific ways because God is in fact love, we must remember a few things. What does God love most? Ready for the answer? Himself. What does God love most? Himself. If God loved anything more than himself, then the thing that he loves more than himself would be God. If God valued anything more than himself and his own holiness, his own goodness, his own glory, then the thing that he valued more would be God and he would not. God loves himself most, for he is in fact most holy, most just, most wise, as our confession states. And sinners, for that is what we are in Adam, we have rebelled against the most holy one. The one who is holy. Holy, holy. Pastor Isaiah and his teachings on the doctrine of God argue that sinning against an infinite God requires an infinite punishment. That does not mean that God is not love. Or that God does not love his creatures. But God does not love them at the expense of his own holiness. He will not lower his perfection. For us lest we become the gods and he become the creature. Also, don't forget what the scriptures say. Consider the demons who were surprised when they were met by the Son of God, incarnate the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 8:29. They cried out when they were confronted with Christ, what business did you have with us, Son of God? Here's what they say, have you come to torment? Other versions say, have you come to torture us before our time? There's no holding back in what they know is coming. And those who follow them will share in their punishment or torture. Those who reject Christ are called children of the devil and they will share in their father's punishment. In heaven, when the righteous see the judgment of God and the punishment of God, no one will ever protest that he is being too harsh. I've said this already, haven't I? We saw the rejoicing in heaven over the punishment of the wicked, not the lament in heaven. God reveals His goodness in the punishment of the wicked. We believe that for some, the reward of the blessed beatific vision will be greater than others. Some of you will see God better than me. It will be your blessed reward of the beatific vision. But we will all see God. We will all be satisfied with what we get. Some of us even more satisfied than others. But it is the reward of heaven. And it is also connected to the deeds, the good deeds on earth. You're being merciful to people and loving toward people. Not necessarily you being the preacher, you being invited to go here and there to, to speak. That's not necessarily the ones who get the most reward. Those who show mercy, those who display love, those who show kindness, they will receive rewards in heaven and the greatest of reward is seeing God. Now, if heaven is the opposite of what they will receive in hell, then those in hell will also receive differing degrees of punishment. If it is true in heaven, then it is opposite in hell. They will all suffer, though. Talking to Pastor Isaiah and another uh, brother this week, they made the point that no one will be happy if they are in level one of the punishment and not level five. They will all be suffering. No one's going to say, well, at least I don't have it as bad as that guy. I could get used to this. It's not as bad as I thought. No hell will be a place of suffering. No suffering will be enjoyable. God is just, though. The grandmother who lives, who loves her family, who is, shows kindness to them, who shows kindness to her neighbor, but who is, in fact, a devout Muslim, who rejects the person and work of Christ, will most likely not be judged in the same manner as an Adolf Hitler. Or again, a pole pot, or we can go through all of the most wicked the most wicked expressions of humanity in history. Why? Because God is good, and God reveals his goodness even in judgment and punishment of the wicked. Does God love the sinner in hell? Ready for this? Yes, in one sense, and no in another. No, because God does not offer them salvation, which is the highest expression of His love. No, in that God is still allowing them to exist, albeit a sad existence. Someone would say, but won't they just wish that they would just not, they they would just die? You know, when someone, forgive me, when someone expires themselves, because there are little ones here, their expiration of themselves is an attempt to escape something that they are presently suffering in hopes that there is something better on the other side. Their their reasoning is, anything is better than this. They may say, I just don't want to exist at all. To wish to not exist at all is fundamentally impossible. Here's why. Because... That which is fundamentally good, your existence, is impossible to hate because there is fundamentally something good about it. They want their suffering to end, not their existence to end. It's why the person causes themselves to expire. They want their suffering to end, not their existence to end. Saints, so much more than we could say on these things, but for now... The spearhead of this sermon, God reveals His goodness through the judgment of the of, of the wicked. We must not allow ourselves to give in to the temptation of softening the language of God, and attempt to protect God and His character or His integrity. We must also remember the the language of Scripture is given to us, and we must not avoid it. It is given to us, but it's also given to us as a warning, so that we do not have to participate in that horrific language that the scriptures describe for those who are going to hell. God doesn't lighten his His word or his language or the heaviness of judgment, and neither should we. Why? Because God is good. And for as bad as hell is, you can encourage someone, anyone, that they don't have to go there. If they're worried about hell, You can encourage them and say, but you don't have to go there. It does not have to be your eternal state. If you're fearful of it, there's a way now for you to escape. The smoke, you may begin to smell the smoke, but you don't have to enter into the building. There's a place that God has given for you through Christ to escape that judgment. And let me say to you, as we're preparing ourselves, and if you're wanting to see what it looks like, Feast your eyes on the table. Feast your eyes in just a moment on the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That stands as a representative of how we can escape the just punishment of God. It is through believing in the one who has lived, who has died, who has resurrected, who has descended and then ascended for those who believe. And if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. His victory will be your victory. The joys of heaven can also be yours. If you are trusting in Christ, this is not a sermon for you to lament then. It's a sermon that should, as I've been saying over and over again, should cause you to praise God for His goodness. He's been merciful to you in that He has shown you Christ And all of the horrors of hell are not your eternity. But it should also encourage you to be vigilant in sharing the gospel. Because you know some who are heading there right now, unless the Lord be merciful to them and save them. Saints of God, let's contemplate on what we've heard and I will administer the sacraments this morning.